Wednesday, January 26, 2022. This is Messiah Matters number 374. I'm ready for a vacation. My name is Caleb Hegg. And I'm ready for Caleb to have that vacation. I'm Rob Van Hoff. What up, buddy? Oh, I just realized that you're... Uh, sorry, hang on just a second. Let's see if I can figure this out. Rob is not on screen right now. That's okay. We'll figure it out quickly. Let me just uh, do a little little something here. A little something here with the software. Man. We just mid-week or, or mid-quarter, mid-quarter uh, in our classes at Tor Resource Institute. And... I have to say, you know, I can under, I can understand the students that are <laughs> struggling right now because it's a lot of reading, a lot of material. This is when Greek, first year Greek starts to get real dense. But yeah. uh, I just, I'm about to start a new class as well. And uh, I opened up the class and they said, uh, it, they, they have you sign a, a uh, agreement that you will put aside a certain amount of hours to take the class. And in this particular class, uh, I had to sign the agreement that I would uh, set aside 14 to 16 hours per week to take this class. And wow. I'm not going to lie to you, that's a little bit more than I had been expecting. That's a part-time job. It's a part-time job just to take one class. So that's, it's a blessing. I'm not going to, I'm not going to decry it. It's a blessing for sure. So, hey, whatever. All right. Hey, uh, we are super, super happy that everybody's with us here. And uh, yeah, somebody in the in the uh, chat room says the feed seems a bit choppy. I'm sorry, there's not a whole lot I can do about my internet right now. Uh, we'll just try to we'll we'll try to keep refreshing. Um, yeah, thank you to all of our producers. We are uh, we are grateful to you and uh, to all of our supporters as well. Okay, uh, before we get started, let's do all of our our usual stuff let's tell people where they can find what they need housekeeping to find. housekeeping two five three four six five thirty two oh five it's two five three forty four six five thirty two oh five in case you want to call our comment line messiah matters wants to hear from you leave us a comment a question or two call two five three four six five thirty two oh five you can also shoot us an email, chegatorresource.com. It's C-H-E-G-G at torresource.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel if you have not already. We greatly appreciate it so very much. If you are subscribed, then go ahead and give this video a thumbs up. That helps us just as much. Okay. Um, so we had some interesting uh, some interesting emails from this past week. Interesting, interesting word. Interesting is It's an like non-committal word. as to like... <laughs> Like it, no it's, comment. It's, no comment. You yeah, go one way or another when you say it's interesting. Yeah, it. Uh, yeah, I had one of my favorite. Just, just to build up on that footnote real quick. Okay. One of my favorite teachers in college. Like I wrote one of one of my paragraphs or in a, in a paper, a term paper. It said, "It is interesting to note that." And he's like, he says, "Never do that again." <laughs> and so, and so he's like. He's like people all the time. They say it is interesting to note that he's like, I don't find it interesting. It's like, it's like, that's not what, how you want to communicate. So ever since then though, I'll be reading like published books by like the biggest, you know, publishers and academia. And you'll see it is interesting to note that. And it's like this thing that people use yep. and I'm like, ha ha, he didn't have the teacher I had. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. Uh, okay. So it's not interesting. Yeah. The, these, these emails <laughs> gotcha. are not interesting. <laughs> Check this out. Just real quick. Look at what I'm. Look at what I'm drinking. Nice. Oh that man. Looks like coffee. Jack coffee t- tastes so much better out of a Messiah Matters uh, producer mug. Okay. Uh, so let's get to our not interesting emails real quick uh, then, and uh, <laughs> let me just make sure that the chat room is not. Lagging feed, everybody says. I don't know what to, you know, on my end, it says everything's good. I do apologize. Uh, so we're just going to have to jump in and see if uh, if we can, uh, if it'll resolve itself. Okay, this is what uh, Redinator989 says. Now, this, this comes on the heels of our discussion last week about drinking... Uh, wine and alcohol, which John uh, called in and, and left a voice message. And um, so basically he was asking, do we think that uh, that it's 
against biblical mandate, against the law, against anything to drink alcohol? And our answer was no. And so uh, we talked about that for quite some time. You can go back. That's show number 373 for anyone who is interested. Redinator989 says, New Oinos, unfermented is my interpretation. Love your channel. Okay, new oinos is the uh, word that it, the Greek words that are being used when it says new wine, and so I'm sure that this is a reference to the parable, uh, perhaps when Yeshua says no one puts new wine into old wine skin, skins, uh, so on and so forth. There are several other references to new wine, and Redinator nine eight nine is correct that that uh, should be. Nuoinos, that is the Greek words, nuoinos. <clears throat> but this is uh, trying to uh, make a precedent out of one specific use of a term, which is nuoinos, and, and neglecting all of the times, all of the times that uh, the word wine or strong drink or fermented beverage or old wine is used throughout scriptures. In fact, I would say my personal opinion is that new oinos is uh, is only is used minimally compared to the many, many, many times that wine is referenced in the scriptures. And so to assume that new oinos is going to be the blanket statement on how we should interpret is all that, alcoholic beverage to is me is that ridiculous. How he's meaning that then? Because to me. <laughs> New wine, like in the exactly in the passage you're describing, Caleb, is <clears throat> the newness refers to where it is in the process. Like the right. logic of what Yeshua is saying is, is if you're a winemaker and you you've just squeezed your grapes, you don't put that into an old wineskin. You need why? Because it's implied by process, it's going to ferment and expand. Right. So therefore, you need to get in. Yeah, it's new going wines. to ferment. Ferment. <laughs> Right. In other words, so new wine goes with new wineskins. Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to because be... that's that's the beginning of the process. Because the expectation is that right. people are going to enjoy it at the end of the process. Joseph de Israel in the chat room says they accused Yeshua of being a drunkard. Exactly. What do you think that he was drinking grape juice? And they were, oh, you're such a drunkard. You're drinking all this grape juice. No, of course not. I mean. I'm not trying to uh, to down whoever is uh, responsible for this comment, but but I think that this is a, a very uh, tr attempting to put blinders on uh, for really the various texts about wine and fermented drink within the scriptures. Um, now, once again, as I said many times in the last show, I don't. Those who are on the train of the Bible uh, says that all alcohol is bad. We're not going to convince. I, I don't believe that we're going to convince, uh, you know, this is ingrained from a very young age, I believe, and is, I just don't think that we're going to convince people uh, for the most part. So, but but this is just an extremely narrow view to try to uh, uh, take uh, this word new oinos and apply it to every single instance in the Bible where you have believers and Yeshua drinking. It, that's just not the case. It's it, it, Grammatically and hermeneutically, this falls extremely short and extremely flat. It's it, it's just it's not logical. It's just not. And uh, that's not that's not a down on this person. I'm just trying to say that I I just don't I the for for me to take such a uh, a view or to uh, consider such a view as being um, even worth trying to defend, I would need more. Uh, I would need more from this person. You, you can't just say new oinos means new wine. Okay, I agree new oinos means new wine. But you need to show me how that then would apply to every instance where Yeshua is drinking old wine or where, where he references old wine or where, um, you know, or where wine or fermented drink in the Torah is used. You know, is God saying that we should pour out a drink offering of fermented drink and but never drink it? Is that, I like, it doesn't, in other words, what I'm trying to say is that uh, whoever wrote this, I would be very interested to see if you could expand on your uh, theological position here. I mean, certainly the term new oinos means new wine and probably means unfermented at that stage in the in the process. But is that supposed to mean that this is a reference to Yeshua not ever drinking? Or is it just 
or is it or is it just a maybe what this person is doing is just trying to say that they understand some Greek. But yeah, I don't it could be simple that maybe they're saying, yeah, I mean, without the full context. I, I, and and um, in that, that's fine. But then then it makes the comment itself suspicious. Like, why, why would you comment Another one, that? Caleb, that is not necessarily, well, I guess it's tangential to this. Is it the from John chapter two, the wedding of Cana? What do you think about when it says, oh, you have you have saved the good wine or the best wine to last? That must have been a, a really good uh, year of grape juice. Was that a new wine? Or does that mean, no, this was this was new wine that had been put into fresh wine skins and then had been allowed to go through the full fermentation process and that that was the, what was the good wine, was something that was quality. And right. it was something that brought joy to the special celebration. Right. Um, yeah, and, so, and I, once again, I don't want to come across as, as trying to beat this person up. I would just like, so I, I'm hoping that this person actually watches this episode as well, whoever it was who, who commented, because I would actually like a little bit more um, context or a little bit more hashing out of what it is you're trying to argue with that statement, because I think that we might be missing part of the context or part of the argument altogether. So I, and I don't want to uh, do a disservice to this person by, by misrepresenting. So if you're listening and you want to expand on it, then please uh, let us know exactly what it is you're tr attempting to argue, argue with that comment. Okay, let's move on. This we got literally minutes before we came on air and it was a good comment. Uh, it was a comment that I thought was worth uh, talking about because we get this kind of uh, argument a lot and so I wanna hash this out a little bit. Um, hang on. Okay. Uh, Spencer says, I will ask two questions. Number one, in the New Testament, and actually, I'm not sure if this is actually two questions. I think it's actually one, but it's okay. Uh, he says, in the New Testament, we clearly see Jesus Christ listing down all kinds of sins such as fornication, drunkenness, idolatry, etc. Paul and the other New Testament writers also do the same thing repeatedly. What we do not see them doing is including Sabbath breaking as a sin. Can you please give me a new give me New Testament scriptures that identify Sabbath breaking or not observing the Sabbath as a sin after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? That's the end of what he calls question one. I want to stop here because I want to now talk about this a little bit. First of all, um, the the breaking up of commandments into three categories, which is moral, ceremonial, and uh, Civil. Civil. Thank you very much. Uh, hey, is, you know, I'm here for a reason. <laughs> uh, this is a, this is a man-made, uh, these are man-made categories. I've said numerous times. Caleb, I want you to show me from the New Testament that moral, civil, and what was the other one? Ceremonial. There Ceremonial. I'm here for a reason. That's, you're here for a reason. <laughs> yeah. Show me from the New Testament that that breakdown is, is godly given. Yeah, exactly. Well, and and that's I mean, godly given is is a great point because we don't actually see these categories being um, created until later on in the church fathers. I think the first person and the chat room would I'm sure will be able to um, will be able to help me out, out on this. I forget the church father who first broke the Torah up into civil, ceremonial, and moral. Um, if you have that information, please let me know because I'd love to put it in my note system. Anyway, with that said, uh, the, the, these are, these are man-made categories. And so there's multiple things that we could say just about these categories. Number one, let's go back to the idea of what Yeshua did re like re, uh, define, not define. He restated. Okay. So we have fornication, we have idolatry. These things are considered moral by um, by Spencer, uh, the person who wrote in. Okay, so then what about bestiality and what about cross-dressing? These things... Oh, the idea, if it's not restated specifically. Yeah, so, so and that's kind of my point here is that these two things, uh, bestiality and, and um, cross-dressing, are not actually restated by Christ or anyone else in the, in the New Testament. And so the question then is, okay, well... Does that mean that they're okay? And I think that anyone and everyone who is going to argue such as Spencer has is going to say, no, those aren't okay. Okay, uh, why not? And usually, at least the arguments that I have uh, come up against this argument when I've been talking about this argument, they've said because 
these fall into the category of moral law. And so since the moral law is upheld within the New Testament, all of the moral laws are then included. But the problem with this argument is that the Torah presents the Sabbath as a moral law. And this is something that most people don't want. They want to say it's ceremonial because there are ceremonial aspects that are, in fact, included into it. But the uh, the Sabbath brings the death penalty. That is a moral law. There's all sorts of moral laws that go along with the, you know, what does it say? The, keep the Sabbath throughout your gener- throughout all your generations. It is an eternal covenant between me and, the, and your fathers. Why is that? Because I, be holy for I am holy. So this is moral, right? This is a more, once again, and, I don't and think. And you're also to uh, give rest to, to workers. Right. That's yeah. also moral. That's like also you're, moral, you're, yeah. So, I mean, so the, the categories themselves break down. But if we are going to try to uphold the categories, then certainly the Sabbath has to be placed in the moral category. In fact, it has to be placed in all three categories. And that's really what, what people uh, try to skirt is this notion that the Sabbath is, is, uh, is not moral. So just right there, uh, I would say that, that uh, if you're going to attempt to break up the commands into these categories, the Sabbath has to be part of that. If you want a specific verse where Christ <clears throat> talks about keeping the Sabbath, uh, uh, if you love me, keep my commandments. There you go. That's a good one. Here's another one in Mark Mark 2. Uh, the Sabbath was made for man. Yeah. Not man for the Sabbath. Exactly. So what he's doing, he's saying it, that would be nonsensical. If it's done away with. Well, except what he's going to say is after that, that's before the death, burial, and resurrection. So, you, so But you know what? So, some, is the, so is the entire Sermon on the Mount. So are we to throw out the entire Sermon on the Mount because it was it was before his death, burial, and resurrection? So Paul says in Romans 13, says, um, whoever loves his neighbor has fulfilled the Torah. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. These are all from the 10 words. If there is any other commandment, it is summed up in you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is a fulfillment of the Torah. So if I take what Yeshua said, Sabbath was made for man, that that's, and I take what Paul's stating here, that means the Sabbath must be oriented to help us learn about loving God and loving our neighbor better. And it was instituted before the uh, giving of the Torah on si- at Sinai. It was instituted in the creation. So this isn't even a Sinai commandment. It's a commandment. This is another good point, Caleb, is that the Gentiles are not coming to the faith with a belief about a seven, a six-day creation and a seventh-day rest. They're coming from some sort of pagan cosmology of where the world came from or whatever. So when they come and they come in the synagogue on the Sabbath and they learn, this is why Paul, where did Paul go? He went to synagogues on the Sabbaths. Yeah, all they, throughout the book of Acts. The, the chat room, let not, your, let, let not your flight, flight be on the Sabbath. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> why? If the Sabbath's done away with, why? Excellent. So, so yeah. The, and, but the, the, I, it's, there's more, though. There is more. If we look at, I mean, well, uh, the obvious one that everyone is going to go to is, uh, truly, truly, I say unto you, until heaven and earth passes away, not the smallest letter or stroke will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who annuls one of the least of these commandments shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That would include the Sabbath, since it's an eternal covenant throughout all your generations. What about Paul wanting to get back to the temple for Pentecost, <clears throat> which is a Sabbath, by the way? Yeah. What about Paul saying uh, in First Corinthians uh, five, "Therefore, celebrate the feast." That is a reference to Passover and is clearly a Sabbath. So, uh, the the I would ask Spencer, are you just talking about the weekly Sabbath, or now are you going to concede that we should then be celebrating the the uh, festival Sabbaths, but not the weekly Sabbath? So, and not only that, but I I love it. Here's the other thing that that no one is really talking about. People are trying to say that God wanting uh, a piece of our time and us dedicating a day of, and a t- uh, a piece of our 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 daily uh, of our weekly time to God is a burden. You're telling me that God giving us a day off is is something you don't want to do? Uh, like this is a gift from God. Think of like I think of like 
my son, he he really want really wanted a uh, a Swiss Army knife. My son's nine, and he was eight when he wanted the Swiss Army knife. You know, he's he's in the Cub Scouts and he uh, he's into camping and all this kind of stuff. Jimmy's got one. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so I went out and I found him a, a a nice little Swiss Army knife and I gave it to him. Well, th- he's told me this is you know I really love this. It's sentimental. What if I gave that to him and he was like, "What? I don't want this. Is a burden carrying this around is going to suck." No, of course not. Like when your father gives you something. A special gift you enjoy it and the sabbath is a special gift to god's people from all eternity and yet you got people going why do we have to keep that why do i have to carry that around that that sucks no that's not what look if you don't want to keep the sabbath that's between you and god don't keep the sabbath then that's like saying you know i don't want to stay faithful to my wife if you don't i mean what are you talking about this is part of the covenant obligation it's obvious from the very beginning and he, not only that, but but the other thing that Spencer is not is not uh, realizing here in this in this comment, the church has never agreed with the notion that the Sabbath is just done away with up until the 20th century. The church has always said that the Sabbath needs to be kept. The Lutherans said it. They the, just shifted. They, they just they, yeah. they shifted how they interpreted it. Yeah, into, they they just moved it to Sunday. So are you saying that there should just be no Sabbath at all because Jesus didn't restate it in the New Testament? Or are you saying that it should be shifted to Sunday? Because if you're just saying that no one should keep the Sabbath anymore, guess what? This is a very new, and I would say a response or a liberal thinking. I think that this is liberal scholarship seeping into into modern day Christianity. The notion that we shouldn't be Sabbatarians. No, I mean, even modern scholars say, yeah, the Sabbath is something that should be kept. Granted, they are going to say that it's not all, of course, but many modern conservative scholars are going to say that the, that this, the Sabbath has uh, a lasting value and that it should be kept by by believers. It's only in recent time that this has changed to say, no, no Sabbath at all. Right. And, it, you know, back to the Genesis one and Genesis two, I mean, for an outsider coming to the God of Israel by faith and believing in the revel that the Torah is, a, is the revealed word of God, it changes their cosmology. They're called to be, to understand that the Lord of Israel, the God of Israel, created everything right, and rested on the seventh day. That's the beginning of the Torah. And so just to like toss it out like is and say, oh, well, you know, I, just, now, I don't think this about Spencer or other, you, you know, I, I think that there are plenty of Christians who genuinely think that the Sabbath has just totally been done away and we we don't have to keep any of it. And that, okay, if that's the case, but I wonder if this comes from a, I wonder how much the industrial revolution and the and the notion of like women coming into the workplace and, and those kind of things actually have changed the the view in scholarship on the Sabbath. And the, and the reason I say that is because as women enter the workplace in the 50s and 60s and, and later, and as um, you know, as the Industrial Revolution takes off and work becomes kind of more of a focus, I wonder if like the notion of working on the weekends is something that like for convenience sake, it would be really nice if I could just work on Saturday or Sunday, right? Like for, for Christians, it's like, oh, well, I need to work on Sunday. So because my job says I have to. And so like, are is this real? Like, I wonder how much this has influenced or is it simply just a theological view? And that Here's the thing is that God's law, I was thinking it was so my kids and I have been watching this show on, uh, I don't know, Discovery or something like that. It's called Alone, right? And all they do is they, uh, they, they, they drop people off. They drop survivalists off in like the Arctic in September and say, whoever is the last 10 people, whoever's the last person to stay here wins $500,000, but they have to do all their own camera work and everything. They have to hunt that, you know. And these people are starving to death and whatnot. And what I realize is like, okay, if you watch these survivalists out in the wilderness, everything they eat is unkosher. They're catching mice and squirrels. They're catching foxes. They're catching wild boar. They're, you know, everything. They're hunting bears and stuff trying to stay alive. And I, as I watch this, I think to myself, what would Israel do if they get the kosher laws and then they go into the wilderness? You have to be solely dependent on God at that point because what you're eating and your sustenance is a miracle. 
Right. They're not scrounging for lizards in the desert. Exactly. But this is how you this is how you would but have that's survived. That's what the survivalists have to do. It's like we're eating ants and, and exactly. Uh, you know, but uh, yeah. And so the, so the point is, is that like God gives these restrictions to to uh, his covenant people. Why is it to restrict them? Yes. Is it to set them apart? Yes. But is it also to make them fully dependent on God? Yes. And you know what? When you have a, a job and you think that the uh, the only days that you can you're not going to keep your job unless you work on Saturdays. That's a leap of faith. At some point, now I'm not saying everybody should just go out and quit their job who who has to work on Saturdays, but I think that we should work towards that. And uh, I think believers who, especially believers who come to an understanding that the Sabbath needs to be kept, I think, you know, unless your job is, you know, as a doctor or life-saving in some way in the military or something like that, I think we should be moving towards trying to take Saturdays off. And that can be really uncomfortable and really difficult for some people. So... I, and yeah, I got a lot of people in the chat room. We love that show. That show is, I got to say, it's one of my favorite shows now. And uh, I haven't watched all the seasons, but uh, it's it's fairly kid-friendly too. My six-year-old and my nine-year-old watch watch it with me. Every once in a while, my son said they bleeped somebody's, they bleeped when somebody said a, a bad word, but they didn't blur his mouth out. So my son was like, you know what he just said? He just said that word. Why didn't they bleep out his, his mouth? And I was like, Fair. Fair enough. Anyway, okay, let's move on. Uh, what do we got here? Okay. Oh, should we? Uh, let's. I think we beat this to to death, but let's just uh, just finish out this comment by Spencer. Number two, the New Testament clearly shows Jesus in reinstating the moral commandments to be observed in his teachings, which would include the Sabbath. Then, so you just thank you. You just thank you, Spencer. In your comment, you just proved that the Sabbath should be kept. But we don't see him mentioning the fourth commandment. He mentions the other nine commandments very clearly and even repeatedly, but even but never commands Sabbath keeping to be observed. I think that in the first century, the notion that uh, a covenant member wouldn't keep the, the Sabbath is absolutely out of the question. It's like the notion that Christ could have said, uh, uh, whatever you eat is, is fine. You don't have to eat kosher, like biblically kosher. You know, like you think that the Maccabean revolt happens, what, 100, 120 years before this? And uh, people, you know, they're dying, literally dying to not eat unkosher food. And then Christ comes along and is like, oh, you don't have to eat kosher food anymore. And everybody's like, sweet, great. Yeah, let's just go eat a bunch of food that, uh, you know, a bunch of, of pig. That's what we're going to do. I, I mean, come on. All right. Um, hang on just a sec. You know what? Before we move on with this, uh, let's do. Let's just do. Oh, yeah, this one would be good. Weights and measures. <laughs> we do not get a lot of humor here, and when we do, it's wonderful. You've been blessed. Thank you for the super chat. Love is bigger. We appreciate. All right, um, hang on just a sec. So let's go back to the... Okay. So Paul and the other New Testament writers also teach on the nine moral laws. I mean, you got to get rid of these these categories. They're not biblical. Uh, the, the nine moral laws to be observed, but never the fourth commandment about the Sabbath keeping. Why is that? Uh, it's a given. They just expect that everyone knows that you would keep the Sabbath. Please also give clear New Testament scriptures, which we did. Okay, I think that we've uh, we've done that. Let's move on. Well, we we could do the the Colossians too. Don't let anybody judge you about concerning your Sabbath observance. The idea is that outsiders telling him, "Oh, you're you're doing you're it wrong, wrong or right. whatever," right? It, even though that's been taken, it implies that you're keeping the Sabbath. Yeah, and that people are trying to teach you traditions of men instead of the Word of God. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, Tony in the chat room says it right. He says, uh, no command lacks moral implications. That is absolutely right. Good point. Yeah. Okay. Um, so this was left, I don't know. Uh, this was left about a show that we did, not last one, but the one before. I think it was 372. It might have been 371, but I think it was 372. Robert Funk BDP writes in and says, who is the bride of Yeshua? That is, do Messianic believers, so this is, 
talking about our discussion on the term Messianic Judaism and what Messianic Judaism is. Okay, so that's really where this is coming from. Okay, with that in mind, who is the bride of Yeshua? I.e., do Messianic believers who rely on Yeshua's blood for salvation have any part in the bride? Yes, of course. Yes, of course. I see, and this is going to, I can hear the emails being typed before I even say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I see Messianic Judaism as a form of Christianity. It's another branch of Christianity. Yes, it is. So, In spite uh, of the, their protests within Messianic Judaism, right? They, they're a branch of Christianity that now, has tried to hack itself off from, right? in some respects. Anyway. I, I will say this. I've been studying some, uh, some John Calvin. John Calvin argues that, the, that those who are Christian are, are Trinitarian. So this goes back to our brother who, uh, John, who had written in, I don't know if I shared that or not, but he basically says the term Christian was also always associated with uh, Trinitarianism. And John was arguing that uh, he's not a Trinitarian, a Trinitarian. So he was arguing that uh, basically we shouldn't be Trinitarians, which is ridiculous. But anyway, so... The question is, is do we want, so when I use the broad term Christian, and this is going back to our, our previous conversation two shows ago, um, you know, I was saying, I think it, it somewhat implies in our time, anyone who believes that Yeshua is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. That's where I, that's where I kind of take it. And the, and the reason why is because you have uh, people referring to Mormons and J-dubs and, and uh, so on and so forth as Christians. Now, is that how the Bible used it? Absolutely not. The Bible would have never that when when in the first century when they were using the term Christian, they meant followers of Yeshua, and that meant uh, what what is what is a follower. So I mean I agree that I don't think that I let me clarify all of that conversation. I don't think that the way that we're using the term Christian today is necessarily the the true like the way it, it was intended. I think it's been twisted. So I I, I grant that. But the the point is, is that, I mean, I'm happy. I'm very happy to say that Christian only encompasses those who are Trinitarian. If, if that's how we want to use it, and we'll just let the, uh, we'll let the chat room decide on this one. We'll let the 36 people who follow this show uh, decide for the entire world how the word, the term Christian should be used. Anyway, okay. So, yes, those who are Messianic uh, believers. The small Sanhedrin. Yeah, the small Sanhedrin. Because it's a half a 72. Exactly. So the, yes. half, the half Hedron. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. So uh, this person asks, are Messianic believers part of the bread of Christ? Absolutely they are. Are Messianic believers who rely on Yeshua's blood for salvation the ones described in Revelation twelve seventeen? He quotes from the NASB 95. Quote, so the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That is the woman uh, uh, that is that the woman, the passage, uh, this, this last something's wrong with this last sentence. So I'm trying to figure out exactly what, how he states this. Uh, basically, the woman in the passage is the chosen taken into the wilderness for three and a half years. Uh, question mark. Okay, so ultimately, I, I I don't think that we can say that a specific sect within Christianity, wh- no matter what you want to call it, if Messianic Judaism, Messianic Torah observant, whatever, I don't think that that uh, this passage in Revelation is being specific to a sect within within Christianity. So no, I don't think that we would be able to say that. Only God would be able to say that. Uh, it, it, to me, it says it, it's a blanket statement for believers. Once yeah. again, go ahead, Rob. No, that, that's, that's, that's right. I mean, you got to understand that the imagery of the bride, right? And in some instances, God's our father, right? And we're children. And another image, we're the bride of Messiah. Like Paul says, I've got you ready uh, as a bride unto the Messiah. Um Another is the the wedding, the feast. Well, there's the wedding feast where we come and celebrate as attendees of a wedding feast. That's a parable. Another is Yeshua said in Matthew eight, many will come from the east and west and will sit at the table in the kingdom with the patriarchs. So it's just a big feast with the patriarchs, not necessarily a wedding. So why do we have all these different pictures of 
the kingdom of God. It's because he's trying to help us learn to say what it's like. This is what it's like. And at the end of Revelation, the bride is the new Jerusalem right. coming down, um, which means all the inhabitants, all those who call Jerusalem her mother, as Paul says, and Jerusalem above is our mother in Galatians, um, is also the bride. So is it a mother, a bride? Are we children, right? None of these images is fits in the same picture, but they're all pictures that God gives us to help us try to understand something that's outside our ability to grasp by things we know. That's how I look at it. Yeah, and I think that we need to go back to what Yeshua says. You know, the, the question by the lawyer is, is what is the greatest commandment? And he says, love, uh, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I'm fully on board with people who say, well, that means the the uh, covenant obligations, which would include things like Sabbath and, you know, kosher laws and those kind of, okay, fair enough. But this is not, I mean, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to love God. Now, I'm, I'm not defending people who are trying to say, or maybe I am, maybe that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm defending people who, who are going to say, well, I don't think that, you know, you should keep the Sabbath anymore. The reason I'm defending them is because I think that, you know, at, the heart of it, all of us have theological issues and have observance and holiness issues. All of us do. And so I think that the there is a shift happening within the church, and I think that there is a shift happening within theology. Um, it's starting with the lay people. That's fine. Um, but ultimately what's happening is people are coming to an understanding that we should be should be keeping all of the covenant, uh, you know, the, the covenant obligations, and uh, that these are actually a blessing. And so... Um, it's, it's, you know, I think that we need to be patient as with anything. We need to be patient. The Lord's doing a work and let, let that work happen. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't say, oh, well, anyone who doesn't keep the Sabbath or whatever, they're other. And so they're, we're, we're they're not in, you know, the, the revelation is talking about the messianic Jews or, you know, the, the revelation is talking about the Baptists or revelation is, you know, no, 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 that's it, all believers. Anyone who has a true heart to follow God, that's. That's who the people of, of God are. Okay. Let's move on. Anything else on that before we move on? No. Okay. Okay. Um, I would. <laughs> here's a fun one. I would love to hear your thoughts on Karaites. Let's describe real quick uh, for those who might not know what Karaites are. Uh, now, my my full understanding of Karaite Judaism is uh, spotty at best, and I'm going to allow Rob to uh, fill in the blanks here wherever I'm wrong. The way that I understand it is that Karaite Judaism arises sometime right around the, the same time as Islam, seventh uh, century AD. I could be wrong on that, but that's how I've understood it. And basically, the Karaites are trying to say, no, we're not, we're not jumping on board with uh, what they consider Jewish tradition and ultimately rabbinic Judaism of the Talmud Mishnah. That's how I understand it. And uh, there is a continued movement of Karaite, Judaism, uh, Karaite Jews. And uh, for those who are already wondering, uh, Nehemia Gordon, and yes, I will use that name, Nehemia Gordon uh, claims to be a Karaite Jew. However, from, from what I've heard from those others who have that I know who have claimed to be Karaite Jews, uh, they say that uh, Nehemia Gordon's not quite toting the line. Now, I could be wrong on that too. I don't want to, I'm not just trying to put him down. I'm just saying that like, when, when Torah observant believers usually bring up Karaite Judaism, what they're pointing to is like Nehemiah Gordon. And I'm not sure that Nehemiah is the greatest representation of Karaite Judaism, but I could be totally wrong on that. Rob, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, yeah, the Karaites kind of emerged. Um, isn't, I didn't really prepare for this, but <laughs> they emerged, yeah, post-Islam, you know, in the middle, in the... Uh, Mesopotamia, you had Islamic authority that was like, what are we going to do with the Jewish population? And you had some communities had strong rabbinic representation and other communities of Jews that didn't like the rabbis argued in Islamic legal contexts that they should not, our community should not have to be under those rabbis right. because we, we don't agree with their legal tradition. We are an independent you can deal with us independently because from the Muslims perspective, from the, from their uh, ruling authority perspective, it's like, well, 
we need to find leaders for each of these Jewish communities that will mediate between our authority of, of our, you know, uh, being the rulers and these local communities. And, they, and the rabbis were natural solutions to serve as judges and intermediaries between the Jewish communities and the Muslim authorities. So you had some that didn't that were trying to find a new avenue of inter, interacting with Islamic authority uh, in a channel independent of rabbinic authority. And that's one aspect of where the Karaites came from. They spoke Arabic mostly. Um, and we have from the you know 10th, 11th century um, Arabic writings of Karaites. They were quick to uh, support the Masoretic tradition uh, because that was a way that that's a place they could leverage is the work of the scribes uh, promote, uh, preserving the scripture um, as a as kind of a, a safe haven against the rabbis of the Talmud and the Midrash. Um, and so there's a strange relationship in the 10th and 11th century between rabbinic uh, sages who are uh, uh, who have accepted the authority of the Masoretic text and non-rabbinic Jews that accept the authority of the Masoretic text. So it's around the Masoretic text that they you kind of have some relationship. It's it's not all hostile by the by the early 11th century, um, and and in Egypt, for example, in the the 10 hundreds, um, you have strong wealthy Karaite communities. So they've got money, um, and uh, but yeah, they they really have established themselves as a, systems of Jewish authority, independent of the rabbis. And then, of course, today you have people say, "Oh, they try to push it back and say, oh no, the the Essenes or, or the Qumran community, the the Yahad, that they were Kara, they, they were Karaites, the early yeah. Karaites, or the Sadducees were the early Karaites, but they're just trying to create a backstory for themselves." Um, I know that in in the last, I think it was about, you know, 25 years ago or so, when I first heard of the Karaites, it was uh, people who were advocating uh, viewing the new moon, like citing the new moon right. and then determining the calendar uh, because they were afraid that, okay, we don't want to listen to the rabbis or the majority calendar, so we need to see it ourselves. So then, and this is early days of the internet, you know, like in the mid-90s. And you have these forums and stuff. People, you know, getting into this. We're going to return to the law of God. We're going to, we're going to observe the, the, the sliver of the new moon. Or then they debate: Is it the sliver, or you know, when when do we know? Is it from Jerusalem? Anyway, uh, but uh, 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 one last point, Caleb. It's it's not a well known fact that the Care Bears are a sect of the wow. Careites. Yes, yes, of course. Uh, we have some okay, su super dad joke uh, drop right there. Uh, <laughs> Lee in the chat room says, why would a Christian be concerned about the Karite interpretation unless it draw drew them closer to Christ? Absolutely. I completely agree with that. There's no reason that we should, you know, we shouldn't. Ultimately, I, I see the Karaites personally as I do any other sect of Judaism, which is that they have, uh, they have rejected the Messiah. And so, uh, which is unfortunate. We, we should pray for them and attempt to, uh, attempt to reach them with the gospel. But, um, I don't, you know, I don't, I see them as, as being blind and, and, and with their ears stopped up. So I'm not super concerned. Um, I'm not super concerned about how they would interpret things or, or, you know, what they, what it is they're doing um, in terms of, of. But over the practice. years though, that, you know, the Karaites have developed their own legal tradition, extra biblical. Well, Ash, oh, okay. And that, that's a great point is that I think people will say, Oh, well there's no, like they, they reject all rabbinic tradition. Okay. Yeah. But they've, they've come up with their own rabbinic tradition. Yeah. They just don't call it. They just don't put the stamp rabbi on it, but right. they usually use hakam, like the, the wise man. You know, their teachers are, right? Uh, you know, the wise, Darth Sidious, the wise. <laughs> so, I mean, my thoughts on Karai Judaism is I don't really care that much about Karai Judaism. I don't really Karaite. <laughs> I don't really. Care. Oh wow, the dad jokes are strong with this one. Wow, 
Okay, we got enough time. Let's go to Brandon's question. I have never kept the feast as I have no one to look to and teach me only what I have gathered from trying to understand the scripture and various other people's interpretation as to how to keep the feasts. Fair enough. And I would say that that is your best, that's the best place to go. Go to the scriptures. So for the upcoming spring feast, as I understand it, Passover would be the 14th of Nisan as per scripture. No, the Passover is actually uh, from the 14th to the 15th. The 15th is the Sabbath. So the 15th is the, the festival Sabbath. Right. The 14th, First day of unleavened bread. Yeah. yeah, the 14th leading up to it would be considered, actually, I have argued uh, in writing that the 14th is considered uh, the Passover. Uh, in scripture, there is one specific passage that calls the 14th the Passover. Um, and so I think that it actually goes from the Passover itself goes from, uh, you know, between the evenings is what the Hebrew actually says. So starting on, uh, and, and according to Josephus and the Talmud, uh, which I know is late, but if we compare it to Josephus, I'm not sure Philo talks about this as well. Anyway, Josephus certainly does. They started sa- sacrificing the Passover lamb as soon as the mincha offering, the the afternoon sacrifice was uh, was completed. So we're talking about 12, 30, 1 o'clock p.m. And they would go all the way down until the sunset, which was at that time of year, depending on whether it was intercalated or not, uh, you're talking about a month difference. But even if it was intercalated, it's not that much of a difference. You're talking maybe 45-minute difference. So anywhere from about 5.45 to 6.45 is really... So 1.30, 1 to 1.30... Um, to about six six o'clock, six fifteen is about when they would slaughter the 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 animals, uh, the the lambs. That was the only time you were allowed to bring your uh, Passover offering. There was no other time. And so, uh, yeah, the the events leading up to the Sabbath on that night when the sun drops, uh, that is really a huge festival time for us. And uh, then, of course, the, the, the Sabbath on, on the 15th, the whole day Sabbath on the 15th is a, it's, I mean, it's the best, it's the most wonderful time of the year, <laughs> at least in the Hague home. It is. It, I mean, our kids look forward to it. We, uh, we have a lot of personal tradition that is not, that is extra biblical that we do uh, because we find it to be really, really um fun for the kids. It gets them involved. We give gifts, not on Hanukkah, um, not in the Christmas season, uh, but on Passover. And we do that specifically because now our kids all year round are looking forward to uh, Passover. And uh, so anyway, uh, you guys do a a tree. (laughs) The Passover tree. Okay. I made you laugh on that one. That's a good one. Okay. So let's keep going with Brandon's question on this. So he says Passover would be the 14th of Nisan as per scripture. Okay. Fair enough. I'll concede to that. Yeah. The 14th and the 15th we'll call Passover, but certainly Jewish websites like Chabad.org have it starting on Nisan 15, April 15th. Uh, I don't, so is, is it April 15th this year? Maybe I think that is right. Anyway, um, it's different every year, of course, but the, but, uh, Chabad.com along with any other Jewish website is always going to put it on the 15th of Nisan because that's when the Sabbath is. And and that's actually what we would say is that that's the Passover, that Passover is on the 15th of Nisan, but the 14th is when the lambs are slaughtered. And that's when you'd have your Passover Seder is the 14th going into the 15th of Nisan. Okay. Moving on, I do desire to keep the feast as per the law, but am confused as how to keep them. So I don't feel like I can in good faith keep them as I want to keep them the way he commanded and not be presumptuous and following man-made ways and not his. Yeah, I do, so I understand what you're saying, but I don't know if that's a good reason. You know, I don't know exactly how to keep kosher, so I'm just going to eat whatever I want. No, that doesn't really... You know, I don't know exactly how God wants me to keep the Sabbath, so I'm just not going to. I, I Not exactly the best, in my opinion, the best reason yeah. to not keep a commandment. I would say just move towards it and don't, and just like, I mean, obviously you're watching, guarding your heart against being presumptuous and that's good. So you just keep that guard up, but move toward it, right. move toward it and learn, find people in your area and just move toward it and, and be open and but also be mindful that you know that you're going to encounter 
different flavors and different things. And, and, uh, but at least you're moving toward it and you're increasing in understanding rather than standing afar and just saying, well, there's nothing I can do. Here's, here's what I would say to, to Brandon, uh, is, is this, and to anyone who, who is thinking the same kind of thing. One of the things that I've found about uh, my Christian brothers and sisters who are not Sabbath keepers and not festival keepers is that the Passover is one of the festivals that is that uh, the mainstream Christian church is very open to. And the reason why is because since Yeshua celebrated it and since it has implications in the apostolic scriptures, the New Testament, um, there's usually a curiosity and a want by believers, even non-festival keeping believers, to see what a Passover is like. And I'm not suggesting that Brandon should just say, hey, we're going to have a traditional rabbinic Jewish Passover. That's not what I'm saying. But what I would say is I'm sure that there are some Christian brothers and sisters around. And um, I know I know Brandon's story and I know that uh, he's in a congregation that's that's very um, and and a family that's very close to Torah observance. They're not. He's the only one. He's he's an island. And that's fine. But I think that if you say, hey, I'm, you know, I want to explore what, what it was Christ was doing and, and how, you know, maybe how Christ is doing it. Let's have a meal and let's just sit down. What we'll do is we'll read the account in Luke of Yeshua's Last Supper. And we'll, you know, maybe we'll break some bread and we'll have, you know, we'll have a communion at, uh, at the table. And we'll, you know, we'll eat together and we'll, we'll talk about what it means for, uh, for Christ to be the Passover lamb. To me, that's, you're doing it. That's, you're doing it right. And I would encourage you just to, you know, uh, get some believers around, say, you know, give glory to God, pray, read the, read the story in, in, uh, Luke and, uh, have, have a meal unto Christ. That's what I would suggest. I don't think you need to put on a bunch of extra, uh, you know, man-made tradition. You can if you want, but uh, I think that that's, I think the best thing you can do is see what, you know, read the story of what Christ did at the Last Supper. He goes on though. Is there any evidence the feasts were kept by Israel when carried away into Babylon, Babylonian captivity and how they would have kept them away from the temple? Thoughts. This is a really good question and one that I've actually been working on a lot recently. And, uh, the reason why is because <clears throat> I think that uh, whether or not Israel kept uh, kept these traditions in the, I think that there was a remnant. Okay, I think there was a remnant. Daniel and and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these guys, uh, I think they were obviously keeping some form of the Torah. Uh, Daniel prays three times a day at the morning, afternoon, and evening sacrifice time, and he prays towards Israel, so he's keeping some form of of Torah observance up. However, when they come back, Hilkiah is, uh, finds the, uh, the priest finds the Torah and he says, look, we're supposed to be doing this. What do we do now? You know, like, Oh, let's keep this. We're going to keep this festival. And then everybody keeps it and they're all happy about it. Okay. So it seems like some of the punishment for Israel was that they forgot about the, you know, you're going to be in, you're going to be idolatrous. All right, fine. Be idolatrous then. I mean, God kind of sends them away. Now, with that said, if we get into the apostolic scriptures, the New Testament, Paul speaks to, I think that 1 Corinthians is all about Passover. I, in fact, I like calling 1 Corinthians Paul's Passover letter. Um, Passover is a theme that he uses all the way through 1 Corinthians. He says in, in chapter 5, therefore celebrate the feast. He's t- talking about Passover after he talks about unleavened bread and so on and so forth. He talks about it in, in 10 and 11, right? He mentions these Passover themes all throughout the book. <clears throat> And I think that what he's talking about in first Corinthians is that the, when he says to the Corinthians, therefore celebrate the feast, I think he means Passover and it's 420 nautical miles. That's a straight line. That's if you don't take the roads, if you go in a straight line over water, 420 nautical miles from Corinth to Jerusalem, he certainly does not believe that the the Gentile Corinthians are going to make their way all the way to Jerusalem and not be allowed in the temple because they're still considered Gentiles by the, uh, by the you know, the, the Sanhedrin. So he's, he's expecting them to, uh, to celebrate this in Corinth Gentiles to celebrate the feast in Corinth without the Passover lamb. And, uh, what does that mean for us as believers? What is it? What did it mean for the Corinthians 
how did they do that? I have my suspicions, but I'm not ready to necessarily follow my sword for anything. What do you think, Rob? Yeah, I think they celebrated it abroad. I think Jewish communities have celebrated it abroad. And as individuals desired to go to Jerusalem, they would have had to, you know, scrimp and save and um, try to go, you know, if they lived out in the diaspora somewhere. Um, and maybe that was a goal for them to do at least once or twice in their life. But in terms of practicality, um, it's just, you know, it, that's just the nature of the diaspora. And I think that was by God's design to get the word of God out into the world. Right. I, but I, I suppose my Passover is the one uh, chink in my armor when it comes to the notion that uh, we can keep the commandments of God in the diaspora. And what I mean by that is people say, well, you can't keep the uh, the commandments of of the temple. Well, as believers, actually, we can. And the reason why is because what what would you do as a believer who went to the temple? You'd bring your animal and you'd give it to the priest. That was it. You didn't slaughter it. You didn't you didn't make a sacrifice. You sat and watched. You didn't. There was nothing else that you did. And so um, what are we missing out on? We are missing out on being in that space and the, the uh, you know, clean and unclean and these kind of uh, examples. But ultimately, uh, the Torah specifically says, if you're too far, take the money that you would give to, uh, you know, for a sacrifice and spend it on whatever you want, right? And so I think that uh, now the one time that that's, that's not the case is in Passover, because in Passover, we would, the, 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 the worshiper would take the, the lamb to the priest. The priest would slaughter the lamb, spill the blood, dress the lamb, and then what? Give it back. And so we, we as the worshiper would be given back the, the, the sacrifice, and then we'd go to the table and we'd have the, the, the sacrifice there. And so, you know, this, this is kind of the chink in the armor that I have in terms of this notion that we can't keep the, the uh, festivals outside of the land. I think we can save maybe Passover. However, um, I've taken the, the route that I've taken thus far, and I'm willing to uh, be corrected in this or shown other uh, ways to, to look at this, is that uh, Christ says, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the uh, end of the age. And he says that uh, he is, and we're obviously shown that Christ is the Passover lamb for believers. So every believer does have the Passover lamb at their table. That's how I see it when we worship, uh, when we worship uh, on Passover. So to Brandon, I would say, brother, just go for it, man pick up your Bible, invite some brothers and sisters over, meditate on what uh, what the Lord has done for us as the Passover lamb. And uh, that's what I would say. Anything else, Rob? Nope, nope. Well, weights and measures. Weights and measures. Um, okay, here's the thing is that we're off now for two weeks. Two weeks. Um, it's the bit. Yeah, I know it hurts. It hurts. Whatever shall I do? Exactly. Whatever shall I go? But, uh, it's well needed and, uh, we appreciate all of the people who will be waiting for us when we come back. Uh, we do appreciate you guys so very much. If you would like to, uh, think of different things you want us to talk about when we come back, then please shoot us a voicemail 253-465-3205. It's 253-465-3205. You can also... Shoot us an email, chegg at torresource.com. It's C-H-E-G-G at torresource.com. And uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. So yeah, use those means of communication. All right, guys. So we'll see you, what, in three weeks. We hope that this conversation has done at least one thing, and that is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? You know why. Because Messiah matters. 